If you grew up in southern Louisiana, you definitely did not want to be out past curfew. It's not that the police would pick you up or that your parents would be mad, although those might happen too. But either of those things would be far better than a late night encounter with the dreaded Rougarou. Standing seven to eight feet tall, with the head of a wolf and the body of a man, glowing red eyes and razor-sharp teeth. No, you definitely did not want to run into a Rougarou. The legend of the Rougarou can be traced back to medieval France, where parents warned their children of the dreaded Loup-Garou, or man-wolf, who would get them if they wandered into the woods alone. This awesome beast followed the French to the New World, first to eastern Canada, and then to the swamps and bayous of Acadiana. Some say they even live among us, and only change at night or during the full moon. Most agree that becoming a Rougarou is only temporary and can be driven out of you or passed on to others. Others will swear Rougarous are cursed for life and must be decapitated or burned to ashes. I've heard that a witch can curse you to become a Rougarou, but the curse only lasts for 101 days. On the other hand, I've also heard it's genetic and you're born with it inside of you. Whatever triggers it will cause you to grow unexplainably and hunger for raw meat. Your transformation will be complete when you finally give in to temptation and taste sweet human flesh. Still others will swear that any Catholic who doesn't heed the Lenten tradition for seven straight years will be transformed immediately into the dreaded Rougarou. There are precautions one can take, though, to avoid an unwanted encounter. Men can carry a leaf in their wallet, while women can draw a hexagon on the floor of their home to keep it safe. Everyone should place 13 pennies on their windowsills, because the Rougarou can only count to 12. It will become confused and continue trying to count the pennies until dawn, when it must return to where it came from. If you encounter a Rougarou on the street, don't look it in the eye, because that's a surefire way to become one yourself. If you attack it and draw blood, it may change back to its human form. Once you know their true identity, you can't tell anyone for a year and a day, or you might turn yourself. It's not a fate you want. Being a Rougarou is a lonely life indeed. If you've been to Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio since 2015, you may have ridden the roller coaster formerly called the Mantis, but renamed Rougarou after the legendary beast. When New Orleans basketball team was looking for a new name that suited the region better than the Hornets, Rougarou came up over and over again. They chose the Pelicans instead. But if you know anything about South Louisianans, you know they're tough people who don't just give up. When Baton Rouge's baseball team was trying to find a new mascot, Rougarou again came up repeatedly. Contending with the Fighting Beignets, the Mighty Flamingos, the Red Sticks, and the River Monsters, the name chosen for the team, which will start playing this month, is the Baton Rouge Rougarou.
Of course, if you want to see what one looks like, the Rougarou has its own enclosure at the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans. Just be sure not to look it in the eye. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every town. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is my pleasure to be back with you today. Today, I'm coming to you from the Pelican State, Louisiana. Since last we met, I spent a nice chunk of time in my one-time home city of New Orleans, where I lived from 2007 to 2009 and helped reopen the public school system after Hurricane Katrina. I was there for Mardi Gras this year and got a chance to catch up with a lot of old friends along the way. From there, I traveled all the way south to Grand Isle, then up through the swamps and bayous of South Louisiana. I visited the capital in Baton Rouge, danced to Cajun music in Acadiana, and made my way all the way west to Lake Charles. Along the way, I've had great food, as I'm sure you would expect, and listened to the wonderful sounds of Cajun, Zydeco, Swamp Pop, jazz, blues, and so many other things that make up the gumbo of Louisiana music. From Baton Rouge, I drove 15 minutes out of town to Zachary, Louisiana, to visit my old friend, Teddy Johnson. Teddy runs one of the last great Southern juke joints, and the southernmost one along legendary Highway 61. Teddy is also a blues man in his own right, and it's his music I'm going to play for you today. If you're ever in, near, or within 100 miles of Baton Rouge, be sure you pop out to see Teddy and his wife Nancy. You'll be sure to find good music in an amazing space and Louisiana hospitality at its best. To find out more about Teddy and his legendary juke joint, visit his website at teddysjukejoint.com. To find out more about me, my long, slow, state-by-state journey around the country, or just to get in touch, be sure you check out my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. To get the full experience, find me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go tweet, and on Instagram, miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two me and you. Let's get right to our stories this week. Why don't you mix up a hurricane or a Sazerac or Pimm's Cup, grab a comfortable seat, sit back, relax, and let me take you to the city streets of New Orleans, and then on to the highways, rivers, and bayous of South Louisiana. Well, I'm riding around Baton Rouge, looking for a place to go. I smell them chicken bones in them turkey wings. Teddy's is the place. Teddy's is the place to be. I'm looking for some good music to have a good time. I done drove around town. Teddy's is the place. That 
It was a cool and rainy January night in 1811 on what was then called the German coast of Louisiana. This area, on the east bank of the Mississippi River, had been settled by German pioneers way back in 1721 in what is now St. John the Baptist Parish. By 1811, almost a century later, it was occupied by people of German, French, and Spanish descent, among others, blending together to form a community of what we refer to as Creoles. Most recently had come white settlers fleeing the revolution in Haiti, among them Monsieur Delon. Delon had come to Louisiana and established a sugar plantation on the Mississippi River about 40 miles from New Orleans. He had brought his slaves with him, including Charles, who worked as an overseer or driver. Charles had light skin and green eyes because he had been born to a slave mother and his master father. While he may have received his elevated status because of this, there was no doubt that his master considered him property, not progeny. Work on the sugar plantations was hard, especially in Louisiana's muggy summers, and slaves on sugar plantations lived shorter lives than any other slaves in North America. Next door to the Delon plantation was that of Manuel André, who, in addition to running his plantation, was also head of the local militia. On his property were stored the militia's guns, uniforms, and ammunition, and it was to be the rallying point if the need arose. This cold and rainy January night, it was to serve as a rallying point, but unbeknownst to André. At some point late that night, January 8, 1811, Charles led eight slaves from the Delon plantation and joined 15 on the André plantation and quietly entered the big house. All at once, they burst into the bedrooms of Manuel and his son Gilbert and started swinging. The slaves killed Gilbert and wounded his father, but somehow in the dark and confusion, Manuel was able to escape into the night. The slaves broke into the armory and added guns and ammunition to the cane knives, axes, and farm tools they already had with them. Some donned uniforms, much as the revolting slaves had in Haiti a decade before. Flags were unfurled and drums were made ready, and the largest and bloodiest slave revolt in U.S. history had begun. Over the next 24 hours, the rebel slaves marched downriver towards New Orleans, burning and sacking the plantations as they went. First the Brown Plantation, and then that of the Treponnier family. It was here that one of the rebels killed Jean-Francois Treponnier with an axe, the second and last white casualty of the revolt. From there, they moved on to the LaBranche Plantation, gaining momentum as they went. By nightfall of the second day, their numbers had grown to over 200 as they marched to the drumbeat towards the city, shouting, on to New Orleans, freedom or death. Charles was hoping their numbers would continue to swell as they went, and seeing as there were five times as many blacks as whites in the region at that time, that they would simply overwhelm the defenses of New Orleans and capture the city. Among their numbers were not only Haitians, but others who had fighting experience from their involvement in the civil wars of Ghana and Angola. 
As they marched, word spread rapidly among the white communities in front of them, and the whites fled to New Orleans for protection. As word of the uprising reached colonial governor C.C. Claiborne, he called out the militia to prepare to deploy. The militia was led by Brigadier General Wade Hampton, who was, at that time, the top military officer in the territory. Hampton would later go on to buy the Homus Plantation and become one of the largest landholders and slave owners in the South. As a side note, his grandson, Wade Hampton III, would go on to enlist the help of the Red Shirts to win the South Carolina governor's race in 1876, which would be among the bloodiest elections in American history. On January 10th, two days after the uprising began, Hampton led 30 regular army soldiers, 40 seamen, and members of the local militia out from New Orleans. By 4 a.m., they had reached Jacques Fortier's plantation, where they expected to meet the rebel force. The slave rebels had heard they were coming and turned back upriver, though, where they ran smack dab into a furious militia led by a wounded Manuel Andre, on whose plantation the revolt had begun. As the rebel force was squeezed from both sides like an accordion, a bloodbath ensued, and 40 to 45 slaves were slaughtered, while the rest fled into the surrounding swamps. The next day, January 11th, with the help of dogs and Indian trackers, many more of the rebel slaves were hunted down, including Charles de Lome. When he was found, they started by cutting off both of his hands. He was then shot repeatedly in his thighs until his bones were shattered. His body was then riddled with bullets and stab wounds. Before he died of these injuries, though, his body was stuffed into a bale of hay and set on fire. His tormentors hoped his screams would serve as a warning to those in the swamps of what awaited them when they were caught. Eighteen others were captured that day and sent before a tribunal of plantation owners on the land of John Noel Destrahan. When they were found guilty, they were led back to their home plantations, where, in front of their fellow slaves and families, they were shot and killed. To be sure the lesson was clear, they were then beheaded and their heads put on pikes up and down the river. Those who had not been from a plantation were held in the Cabildo in New Orleans until they were shot by a firing squad. Their heads were mounted and displayed on the lower gates to the city. In total, 95 slaves were killed as a result of the uprising. Understanding the serious financial loss this caused the plantation owners, each was compensated for the loss of their property in the amount of $300 per slave and thus ended the largest slave revolt in U.S. history. It was over almost as quickly as it had begun. The plantations were rebuilt and the sugarcane replanted, and slavery would continue in Louisiana for another 54 years, no doubt made worse by the unsuccessful revolt. In the aftermath of the revolt, several copies of the French Revolution's Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen were found hidden in the revolting slaves' quarters. This 1789 declaration, written in part by the Marquis de Lafayette, was inspired by the philosophy of the Enlightenment. It declared, among other things, 
that men are born free and equal in rights, and that among those rights are liberty, property, safety, and resistance against oppression. If I were to go on, many of the other sections would sound familiar too, since the Declaration of the Rights of Man was written in consultation with Thomas Jefferson. It was obviously written in French though, a language which would have been familiar on the plantations of South Louisiana at the time, and certainly in Haiti. Sadly, but unbeknownst to those enslaved men and women, this document, much like our founding documents, was lofty in ideals, but fell short on delivery. When they talk about all men, they are, in fact, referring only to men, and only to men who own property and are not considered servants. And this is something we must all bear in mind as we proclaim the virtues of our own founding documents and their infallibility, because in reality, and certainly in practice, they fell painfully short. The original sin of this country was the presence of slavery in a land where supposedly all men were created equal. Instead of a nation of subsistence farmers, craftsmen, and merchants all working towards a common goal, we allowed a small group to become wealthy beyond belief, not by their own hard work, but through cruelty and oppression. The defense of this lifestyle and that oppression would literally tear the country in half, just eight and a half decades, one lifetime, after the Declaration of Independence had been signed. And while that costly and brutal war would and did end slavery, it could never end the mentality that a chosen few should be able to attain enormous wealth through the oppression of others. Too much money, in fact, to be spent in one lifetime. That belief persists today, and many people strive to reach that point. But at what cost? There have been very few instances in the history of the United States when someone has achieved that level of wealth through their own hard work, without stepping on people on their way up. You'll hear these people proclaim their mantra as they crush others and their far more modest aspirations. It's not personal, they'll tell you. It's business, which is code for I've sold my soul to the devil. The rich should be rich. Many have worked very hard to get there, and often the poor have some hand in their own poverty. But neither has to be to the extreme that it is in this country. The only argument I've heard on this issue that rings true to me is that it's always been this way, because, in fact, it always has been. And whenever there has been a Charles de Lon who has stood up to it, there has been a Wade Hampton to cut him down. After all the things was done to me We walked the hardest road We struggled so hard He took care of us Oh yes he did Oh the other time War is hell. 
It is something I genuinely wish no one in this world ever had to experience. But sometimes, in the midst of the blood and the bullets, you hear a story which transcends the horrors of the battlefield. Such was the case on June 12, 1863, in tiny St. Francisville, Louisiana, when, for just one day, the bloodiest war in our nation's history was put on hold. John Elliott Hart was born in Schenectady, New York in 1841. He was named for his grandfather, who had died serving in the Navy in the War of 1812. When John the Younger was 17, he himself joined the Navy. In 1846, he went to the newly opened Naval Academy and was the 92nd man to ever graduate from Annapolis. John would travel around the world with the Navy, but at the outbreak of the Civil War, he was sent south to help form the Union blockade of southern ports. In 1862, John Hart was made a lieutenant commander and transferred to the gunship USS Albatross. In October of that year, he was put in command of that same ship. The Albatross was patrolling up and down the Mississippi River in the area of Bayou Serra, at one time the largest port between Memphis and New Orleans, before the town of Natchez, Mississippi was built. In June of 1863, John Hart contracted yellow fever. Without much in the way of treatment, he suffered on board the Albatross, and on the night of June 11th, sick and delusional, he took out his service pistol and shot himself in the head. His second-in-command, Theodore Dubois, wanted to do right by his commanding officer, but knew he couldn't get him home to New York for a proper burial. He didn't want to throw him into the Mississippi River either, because somehow the muddy water didn't fit the bill of a noble burial at sea. So Dubois chose a third option. Under a white flag of truce, he went ashore at Bayou Serra, and trudged up the hill to the town of St. Francisville. Knowing that Hart had been a Mason, Dubois inquired if there was a Masonic temple in town and was directed to speak with William Leake, a captain in the 1st Louisiana Cavalry and the acting senior warden of the lodge. Leake had been born and raised right there in West Feliciana Parish and after attending the Kentucky Military Institute, had studied law at the Centenary College of Louisiana. At the outbreak of the war, he had volunteered and been commissioned a captain. Hearing the story of John Hart, Leake was touched and wanted to arrange for a proper burial for his fellow Mason. He arranged for a ceasefire and had the Union officers bring their comrade's body ashore. Leake arranged for a coffin and had a grave dug at the Grace Episcopal Church Cemetery. Surrounded by Union and Confederate officers and his fellow Masons, John Hart was laid to rest on June 12, 1863. Reverend Daniel Lewis performed the burial, while Leake himself led the Masonic service. After the coffin was lowered, the Union officers returned to their ship. The white flags came down, and the war continued for another two years. While their paths never crossed in life, William Leake felt a responsibility to maintain the grave of his fellow officer and fellow Mason. 
Leake would go on to become a bank president and state senator and continued to care for the grave of John Hart and bring flowers for the next 49 years until his own death in 1912 at the age of 78. He was buried beside Hart and local masons marked their grave with a single large marble slab, quote, dedicated to the universality of Freemasonry. War is hell, but sometimes in its midst, distinctly human events betray the true humanity of its participants. One such story is that of John Hart and William Leake, strangers and enemies in life, forever peacefully connected in death. keep walking. This was the mantra chanted by the thousands of African Americans who took part in the first large-scale successful bus boycott of the civil rights movement, which happened not in Montgomery, Alabama, but in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In 1950, in Baton Rouge, white bus riders generally rode the city buses black bus riders often rode with one of the 40 black-owned bus companies licensed to operate in the city. The city buses were under a great deal of financial stress, and knowing that 80% of the city's bus riders were black, they set out to make some changes. They lobbied City Hall for an exclusive contract, and when it was granted, all 40 of the black-owned bus company's licenses were revoked. The city's black citizens were now forced to ride city buses, which, like most public buses in the country at the time, were segregated. Blacks rode in the back, and whites rode in the front. And so it went for the next three years. In January of 1953, the fare to ride the city bus rose from 10 cents to 15 cents. Reverend T.J. Jemison, who led the Mount Zion Baptist Church, the largest black church in Louisiana, began to hear complaints from his parishioners. He often noticed himself that when buses filled up, black riders had to stand in the back, while many of the whites-only seats sat empty. He approached the city council and made the case that since they paid the same fare, they should be allowed to sit in empty seats. Perhaps surprisingly, the council agreed and passed Ordinance 222, allowing black riders to fill the bus from the back forward and sit in any seat provided they weren't sitting next to or in front of any white rider, and they were to give up their seat if a white rider boarded. While the ordinance was pretty clear, the white bus drivers refused to comply. Reverend Jemison and NAACP leader B.J. Stanley distributed flyers informing the city's black population of the new policy and what to do or say if challenged by drivers or police. Sadly, many just continued to comply, feeling it wasn't worth the fight. That all ended on June 15, 1953. Martha White was a 23-year-old housekeeper who lived outside the city. 
She walked several miles to catch the bus each day, spent her work hours on her feet, and then repeated the process on the way home. On this particular Monday, Martha was just tired, and the bus she boarded to ride home was full. At least the back was. She sat down in a whites-only seat, and even told the driver she would move if a white rider got on. The driver wouldn't budge. He ordered her out of the seat. She stayed put and implored her fellow riders to remain on the bus with her. By chance, Reverend Jemison saw the bus standing still and stopped to investigate. He explained the city ordinance to the driver, but the driver wasn't going anywhere. The city bus manager was summoned, and he told the bus driver he must comply. The driver held his ground, and the manager suspended him. When word of the suspension spread to the other drivers, they went on strike. The matter was brought to the attention of State Attorney General Fred LeBlanc, who stated that the ordinance violated Louisiana's segregation laws and ordered it overturned. That was June 18th. That same day, Reverend Jemison organized the United Defense League. He held four large meetings of members of the black community at McKinley High School and called for a boycott of all city buses. During these meetings, he raised $6,000 from attendees. He went to radio station WLCS to broadcast the boycott to the community. Instead of riding the buses, a system of carpooling and taxis was organized. Horatio Thomas, the first black man in the South to run an Esso franchise, would sell his gas to these cars at cost. After the meetings, organizers went door to door to spread the word, stay off the bus. The following day, June 19th, as city buses approached the stops, black riders turned their backs to the bus, sending a quiet but powerful message. 125 cars were used to help transport the 14,000 black citizens who refused to ride the bus. Many simply walked, with their heads held high. Each night, meetings were held to reinforce the boycott, and by the 22nd, 7,000 protesters packed into Baton Rouge's municipal stadium, chanting, we don't have to ride the buses. There's nothing wrong with our feet. We'll keep walking. The financial backlash on the bus company was immediate and devastating. At that point, just four days into the boycott, the city buses saw the writing on the wall. Without black riders, they were done. The following day, June 23rd, Reverend Jemison met with the city council. And the day after that, June 24th, they passed Ordinance 251. This ordinance basically reinstated the earlier overturned Ordinance 222. Black riders would fill from the back, white riders from the front. No black riders were to sit on the front seat, and no white riders were to sit on the back seat. Reverend Jemison accepted these terms and called off the boycott. Many were upset at this, saying they could have pushed for more. The Reverend reminded them that what they had asked for was to sit down, not integration. What they proved, though, was that a well-organized, peaceful, grassroots protest could bring real change. 
The Baton Rouge bus boycott made national news and also ushered religious leaders into the front lines of the civil rights movement. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. will consult with Reverend Jemison on their organizational strategy when preparing for the larger bus boycott in Montgomery. You know, the one we all learn about in school, which we should, but we should also learn that three years before there was Rosa Parks, there was 23-year-old Martha White, who was the first to have the courage to say, no, I will not give up my seat. There was Reverend Jemison, who organized rides for 14,000 people. And there was harmony on the buses in Baton Rouge, because if there wasn't, well, we'll keep walking. Antoine Domino Jr. was born the youngest of eight children on February 26, 1928, in New Orleans, Louisiana. His family was of French Creole descent and had recently moved to the city from Vacherie. The Dominoes spoke Creole French at home, and thus it was Antoine's first language. His father worked at the racetrack and played the violin at night whenever he could find a paying gig. Antoine learned to play the piano from his brother-in-law when he was around 10 years old and within just a few short years was playing in bars around town. He dropped out of school to pursue music full-time. In 1947, Antoine was introduced to band leader Billy Diamond, who was so impressed with Antoine's piano skills, he gave him a job playing with his band The Solid Senders at the Hideaway Club for a whopping $3 a week. It was Billy Diamond who gave chubby 19-year-old Antoine the nickname we all know him by today, Fats. That same year, Fats married his sweetheart, Rosemary, and they would stay married for more than 60 years until her death in 2008. Fats and Rosemary had eight children of their own, Antoine III, Anatole, Andre, Antonio, Antoinette, Andrea, Anola, and Adonica. At home, the Dominoes listened to the popular black R&B music of the time, singers like Louis Jordan and Winoni Harris. In 1949, two years after joining the Solid Senders, Fats signed with Imperial Records, where he began a long collaboration with band leader and trumpet player Dave Bartholomew. Together, they wrote and produced Domino's first album, titled The Fat Man. They recorded The Fat Man at New Orleans recording legend Cosimo Matassa's J&M Recording Studio, just a block from my old apartment in the French Quarter. The Fat Man sold a million copies by 1951, the first rock and roll album to have that kind of success. Fats didn't see it as rock and roll, though. Quote, it was the same old rhythm and blues I'd been playing down in New Orleans, end quote. 
And while that is definitely true, this music was spreading and gaining a new audience, most notably teenagers. In 1955, Fats released Ain't That a Shame, which would reach number one on the R&B charts and number 10 on the pop chart. In 1956, he did a cover of the song Blueberry Hill, which climbed all the way to number two on Billboard and would hold the number one spot on the R&B charts for 11 weeks. Over the next two years, Blueberry Hill sold five million copies. In 1957, Fats went on The Ed Sullivan Show, bringing his music to an even wider audience. Fats started touring hard, playing as many as 340 shows in a year and bringing him an annual salary of half a million dollars, a fortune in the 1950s. Fats was proud of his success and sometimes bragged that he owned 50 suits and 100 pairs of shoes. His shows were some of the first big shows in the South to draw a truly mixed crowd, brought together across the racial divide to hear the fat man play. These shows didn't always end peacefully, but Fats did lay the groundwork for a generation of up-and-coming black musicians in the South. In 1962, Fats toured Europe, where he met a young band who was truly inspired by his music, the Beatles. Years later, Fats would cover the Beatles' hit, Lady Madonna, a song his own music helped to inspire. In 1963, Imperial Records was sold, and Fats would sign with ABC Paramount. They made him come to Nashville to record, and changed everyone around him who had helped with his early success. While he released 11 singles with ABC Paramount, musical tastes were changing, and he could never recapture the success of his early albums. Despite this, the Fat Man's live performances were still a hit, and he continued to tour for the next 30 years making sure he was home in New Orleans every spring to play at Jazz Fest. In 1986, Fats was inducted into the inaugural class at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the following year, he received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Fats set off on what would be his last tour in 1995. He fell ill in Europe and decided he wanted to stay closer to home from then on. Besides, he said, he could never find any food he liked anywhere but New Orleans, a sentiment I can certainly understand. That year, he received the Rhythm and Blues Foundation's Ray Charles Lifetime Achievement Award. In 1998, President Clinton awarded Domino the National Medal of Arts, although he refused an invitation to play at the White House in my hometown of Washington, D.C. In 2004, Rolling Stone named Fats Domino the 25th greatest artist of all time. In 2005, Rosemary was in poor health, and as Hurricane Katrina made its way towards New Orleans, they decided to try and ride it out. Despite Fats' tremendous success, the Dominoes lived where they always had, in the Lower Ninth Ward, an area particularly hard hit by the storm. Katrina would destroy their home and ruin everything they owned, but the Coast Guard came to rescue them and airlifted the Dominoes to Baton Rouge. When word got out that they were staying at a shelter, LSU's starting quarterback, Jamarcus Russell, who also happened to be dating their granddaughter at the time, came to get them and brought them home with him. In the coming months, 
Fats received a personal visit from President George W. Bush to replace his lost Medal of Arts, and RIAA and Capitol Records replaced all of his gold albums. Several musicians, most notably Paul McCartney, Robert Plant, and Elton John, recorded and released an album called Going Home, a tribute to Fats, to try and raise money to help the Dominoes recover. Fats, meanwhile, recorded his own album, Alive and Kickin', which went to benefit the Tipitinas Foundation to support indigent local musicians. On May 19, 2007, Fats Domino made his last public performance at Tipitinas, right there in his hometown. Sadly, just two weeks before I came to New Orleans to stay. While he did not play, Fats did appear at a benefit in 2009 to raise money to help rebuild schools and playgrounds damaged by Katrina, which as a teacher involved in that recovery, I can tell you was desperately needed. Performing at that benefit was Little Richard, who you may remember from episode 15 of this podcast, also recorded at J&M Records with the Fat Man Studio Band. Antoine Fats Domino passed away at home on October 24, 2017, at the age of 89. While he certainly wasn't the creator of the sound we now unquestioningly think of as rock and roll, he was the first to bring it to such a wide audience, and his influence cannot be underestimated. While I can tell you this all day, I think I know two gentlemen whose opinions on the subject may hold more weight. Ain't That a Shame was the first song John Lennon learned to play on the guitar, and he was starstruck when he met Fats in Europe in 1962. He once said, without question, quote, there wouldn't have been a Beatles without Fats Domino. Fats was in attendance at Elvis Presley's first show at the Hilton in Las Vegas. When a journalist referred to Presley as the king, Elvis shook his head and pointed at Fats and said, no, that's the real king of rock and roll. But to really understand the fat man, I'll leave you with this quote from the shy, unassuming Creole genius from New Orleans. I sure do appreciate that people think so much about me. Now we have traveled the road, played many gigs, many festivals. But we was always known as the country boy from Louisiana. A lot of people there didn't know what Zydeco was all about. So we spread it all around the world and let them know what it was halfway about. So this little song, everywhere we went, we always would sing. Country boy, city life, you will always be a part of me. City life, country boy, you will always be a part of me. That's it for the show this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you did, please take a moment to rate and review the show. It really does make a difference. To find out more about me, my journey, to see photos I took in Louisiana and elsewhere, or just to get in touch, please visit my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, 
gobeforeisleep.com. To connect on social media, find me on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles to Go Tweet, and on Instagram at Miles to Go Before I Sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Even though he sings the blues, it's hard to listen to the music of Teddy Johnson and not get a smile on your face. To find out more about Teddy, his fabulous juke joint just outside of Baton Rouge, or to get in touch with him, just pop over to his website, www.teddysjukejoint.com. Or you can always just drop in and say hello. He'll be happy to see you. For background music, thanks as always go to Kevin McLeod at incomptech.com and to the great folks at freesfx.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. As for me, I'm heading north to see how the other half of Louisiana lives. When next we meet, I'll be bringing you stories from North Louisiana, and I hope you're looking forward to it as much as I am. Until then, get out and go somewhere new, wherever you are. Shake things up a bit, and we'll see you right back here in just a couple of weeks. I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.